It's a Christian worldview. And a Christian worldview is also best summed up by Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, which was our call to worship. And you can look there in your bulletin if you like. Uh, there's an outline for our sermon as well in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along. This summarizes uh, what our worldview is. And here's a hint to the sermon uh, as you're taking notes. These words from Romans 12, 1 and 2 in four points are the four points of my message. So I'm going to let you know that right now. Here's, here's what Paul writes. He says, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is our true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then we will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's where we're headed this morning. From a a God-centered, Romans chapter 1 all the way through 11, all of our study of all of God's mercies, From a God-centered vantage point, we Christians see a world that is governed by God. That God is sovereign over history and empires. And that is the central theme of the book of Daniel. It has everything to do with having a God-centered worldview. And that's why we're starting our series of going back to basics, getting the very foundation, the essential aspects of what we believe, why we believe it, and how we're to live it out, we're going to go back to this book that's all about a God-centered worship. And we're going to look at Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, we're going to do something a little differently. What I like to do is read some of the story, and then I'll comment on what we've read, and then we'll, we'll work our way through the text till the conclusion. We're in the 6th century B.C., These are exiles from Judah who have been taken to Babylon. Daniel is a statesman in the Babylonian court. And this is a record of his life and and the visions that he saw of God's glory. And the central theme of the book, the most basic biblical worldview, is God is sovereign over history and empires. A little bit more background uh, to chapter 3. Back in chapter 2, Daniel interpreted a a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had that really freaked the king out. And Daniel told the king that that his dream represented his desire for power and for world domination. So the king's hearing this, that sounds great, that's about right. But also the dream, Daniel says, the dream was a direct warning from God against making an idol of human power and glory. Well, that unsettled the king. That message seems to have gotten to the king, though. If you were to read uh, towards the end of chapter 2, verse 46, uh, uh, upon hearing this interpretation of his dream that no one else in his court could interpret except for Daniel, uh, this dream of of world domination and yet a warning from, from God, it says that the king fell on his face, he paid homage, he even confessed that God is God of all gods and the Lord of all lords. 
But confessing with your lips and believing in your heart are two very different things entirely. The king pays his respects, but he did not repent of his sin. His heart wasn't changed by grace. And while Daniel gets a big promotion and he moves on and we don't see him in chapter 3, his first act is to take care of his brothers, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so now they are promoted to also now serve in the court of Babylon. That's where we pick up the story in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and then we'll, we'll comment. And note this, uh, in Scripture, in ancient writings, there's often some repetition. So just, just soak it up. There's no bunnies in this story, by the way. Any VeggieTale fans out there? No, no bunnies. Sorry. Yeah, well, you know. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. That's about 90 feet. And its breadth, six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar uh, sent to gather the satraps. These are provincial leaders. Satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Who set it up? King, the king did. It's sort of fore, you know, foreshadowing who's responsible, the king. Verse 4. And the herald proclaim aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, that's a, like a triangle playing a little triangle, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had what? He'd set up a state religion set up by the king. It says it six times. The king responsible for setting up the state religion. He commands the people under his rule of every ethnic group, of every uh, tribe, of every language to come together to worship and bow down this one idol. Imagine at that time um, there were many, many multiple gods that people could worship. You could have a little god for, for a sunny day and another one for the harvest. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I don't care about all that. You are all going to bow before my idol. This was his dream. This was his view of reality. A realm free of dissension, a realm free of divisions, loyal to the king's cult. But on his way to world domination, he forgot a couple of things. At least two things. 
the first and second commandment. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second, you shall not worship any graven image. He knew no fear of God's justice or the consequences of his actions. He had admired God, this display of God's power to to come into his dreams. He admired that, but he had not submitted to the Lord. He was impressed by God, but not converted. Shaken, but not humbled. Let's go on. Roman uh, chapter uh, 3, verses 8 to 18. Let's see what happens next. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, these are enchanters, these are magicians that were in the court. They were displaced by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They lost their job security. Imagine if you lose your job in the government by another agency or some other employees. How does that make you feel? Okay. Not that there are any magicians here, but I'm just hoping that you can relate, those of you who work for the government. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O God, or excuse me, O King, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they were brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good, but if you do not worship you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Everybody, everyone, bows the knee when the band plays the tune. It's the only sensible thing to do. It just makes sense to do that. You can hold on to your beliefs quietly and privately, But just bow the knee. Keep your head down and avoid getting toast. What does that really cost us anyway? He's the king after all. Joseph Goebbels, the Adolf Hitler's propaganda minister, famously is credited with saying these words, and he's actually referring to uh, the Brits when he says this. He said, 
Uh, if you repeat a big lie often enough, people will believe it. It will become the truth. There are lies that we are fed in life, often repeated again and again, from one way or another. The same lies repeated in our society over and over again. Big lies heard every day in our society, in our culture. They are so big that our concept of reality can so easily be skewed. And we're forced to ask the question, well, what's the cost? Until somebody says no. Until someone takes a stand, as these three men did. Note that they weren't protesting. Were they protesting? Were they getting lawyers? Were they holding a big public scene? No, they were just going about their business until they were accused. Then they stood up. These are the same guys, by the way, who gained weight while on a 10-day diet of vegetables and water. Uh, So if you're trying the Daniel diet, just keep that in mind. You might uh, might actually gain some weight. They pay no attention to you, O king. They don't serve your God. Well, what's the reaction of the king? He's furious. He calls them out. He gives them one last chance to bow. And I love this. They calmly say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. I love that. These men are offering their lives to God, to be set apart, to please God alone. They're not yelling. They're just speaking out of that place of certainty. There comes a time in our spiritual journey when there's no more room for discussion or debate or compromise, or looking for loopholes, but a time to calmly, respectfully act. And that's what they do. And with this viewpoint, they say, Oh God, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, now that we know that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Think about that. Look at those words with me again. Look at what they're saying. Wouldn't it make more sense for them to say, God is able to deliver us, but he might not? God God can deliver us, but he might not, but we're going to stick with the plan. No, instead they say, God is able to deliver us, and God will deliver us, but if not, still know that we won't follow you. Friends, this is getting at the core, the basics of a Christian worldview. What it means to live a life of sacrifice, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. They were certain God would deliver them, but they weren't so arrogant as to presume they knew God's plan perfectly. Their confidence was in God himself, not in a fail-safe plan for things to work out according to their plans. Their worldview was this. Dying would not have meant any terrible mistake. No, a terrible mistake would be if they bowed down. A terrible mistake would be if they compromise their convictions. That would be a terrible mistake. They could see 
The meaning of their lives was bigger than the outcome of this showdown. They were saying, we believe God will deliver us, but we don't defy you because we think that we will live another day. We defy you because our God is God. So we won't serve your gods, whether we are protected from the fire or not. These men stood up when everyone else bowed down. What happened next? Let's read verse 19 to 27. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up. Why would he be astonished right at that moment? No screaming. He was astonished. He got out of his seat, rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then they came out of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire came upon them. Now a hair on their head singed, their clothes were still nicely pressed. I can't go outside for 10 minutes to barbecue chicken without smelling like smoke. And these gays came out of that furnace smelling fresh and clean. And there in that fire, the, the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord, was there with them in the fiery trial. The Lord protected his servants better than the king protected his own men. What a miracle of deliverance. They all witnessed the power of God. But did Nebuchadnezzar finally learn a lesson? Did he finally worship God as God? Did this amazing, miraculous event transform his mind? Did he learn a lesson? Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's a good start. Who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own 
God. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks against, uh, against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted them over the province of Babylon. Did the king learn his lesson? He, he acknowledges God's power. He acknowledges that this God, above all gods, demands exclusive loyalty. He, he has, the guys are probably thinking, we, we don't really need your help about tearing limbs and burning people, but appreciate your zeal. The king had no choice but to acknowledge the one true God. He respects God's power, but he does not worship the living God. And because he does not worship God, and because his mind is still conformed to the pattern of this world, he will not know the will of God. The king's question, verse 15, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? It was answered, and yet his heart was not changed. He's learned nothing of value. Neb is still addicted to power and pride. He acknowledges that the Lord is supreme. He recognizes the importance of exclusive worship. But instead of being converted, he only forbids others from saying anything against this Jewish God. He still doesn't get it. He still thinks of the Lord in pagan terms as a God who gives power in exchange for gifts, honor, enchantments. Nebuchadnezzar is impressed by God's power. But the king did not change. Not by display of God's power. And he certainly would not have changed by being impressed by what looked like weakness and foolishness of the cross by which God finally brought salvation to his people. It was the show of strength that impressed the king. But Jesus Christ suffered, suffered the hottest of all furnaces, the furnace of justice on the cross. He suffered because the God whom we worship brings his strength into the world through weakness and sacrifice. That doesn't impress. That doesn't get on the cover of Forbes magazine's weakness, foolishness. But when we suffer in our less hot furnaces, when we share in the sufferings of Christ, we can remember that we are part of God's plan to bring grace and glory into this world, not through strength, but through weakness and suffering and humility. That is our true worship. Conviction, fortitude, steadfastness. In the midst of our trials and tests, these are what forge our faith. No matter how hot the evil one stokes the furnace, God will be with his people in the trials of life. God has already won. God is already establishing his kingdom. If we put our faith in him, transformed by him, then the tests the test that will come, we will then know God's good, perfect, and pleasing will. And so friends, listen. The real miracle then didn't happen in the furnace, but before they even walked in.
The God whom we worship readied them to face the fire. True faith makes the heart fireproof because Christ went into the furnace for us and for the world. And because he went to the furnace and came out and now lives at our core, worship is being so satisfied in God, so full of Christ as gain above and beyond all things, that everything else pales in comparison. And it's called a living sacrifice because we have to come back to Jesus again and again every day. Say, Lord, I'm I'm here again. I'm facing a trial, Lord. It's getting hot. Lord, please protect me. Please guide me through this. You, You know I don't want to compromise. I don't want to look for a way out. I want to cling to you. I don't want to bow down and conform. We do this every day because the trials keep coming. And then we say, take me, body, mind, and soul. Make me an instrument of your glory in the world. Let the renewal your working in me show on the outside. This is our spiritual worship to show the world the God whom we worship. So Jesus was showing on the cross his Father. Three men believed God would deliver them, but they trusted him even if he didn't. That's how faith is supposed to change us. And I pray that God gives me grace in the test and gives you grace when you face your tests. The furnace of opposition will become hotter. The pressure to conform will become stronger. It will take a greater deal of courage and faith for God's people to stand without bowing the knee, without compromising. But I want to say this morning, if you are struggling right now, God has a word for you. You can live as an exile in a foreign land. And you can do better than just surviving through the furnace. You can be glorified. Live according to God's transforming will and ways, not the status quo of the world. 1 Peter 1 says, Your faith is more precious than gold, and that the hard times only serve to perfect it. God will make you stronger, the Spirit with you, and Christ will see you all the way home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your promise never to give a command without giving cover. Grant us, Lord, a worldview that's basic, that's foundational, that's essential with you at the center. We ask that you would build us, uh, build us in us the kind of true worship and character represented in these brave men of faith, all to the glory of Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. Friends, I invite you to take your hymnal and please stand and let's sing, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, hymn number 466. Thank you.